Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to the Planet Earth podcast on a beautiful, crisp, cold and dry winter's day beneath a rainbow. A first for me, I think. And in this edition, we'll be covering citizen science and a gas in our atmosphere that I suspect few people will have heard about, even though it's associated with global warming. Here's a clue. This stuff is safe enough to breathe in in small amounts, but um, when we dispense it, we have a huge drum that we dispense it from. And when we do that, we have to wear a specially fitted gas mask because it can be quite toxic in large amounts. Any ideas? Well, you can see if you're right a little later on. Now, not everyone restricts their interest in science or the environment to reading a specialist magazine or listening to a podcast like this one. Because if you want to take your love of science one step further, you can actually do some of the science as well, be it moth trapping, bird ringing or searching for wild orchids and then feeding your findings, not feeding the birds, obviously, into a research project. This so-called citizen science is becoming extremely popular, and a recent review of more than 230 of these projects found that not only were they helpful to research, but they could also help meet the demands of monitoring the UK's environment. The review was led by ecologist Dr Helen Roy and also involved Dr Michael Pocock, both from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology in Oxfordshire. Michael, I've been involved in citizen science projects myself, but ones that have involved a computer, not actually going out and about, be it defining galaxies or trying to spot whether there are planets around stars. So did your report involve all of the potential citizen science projects that are around? We were really interested in looking at citizen science and its role in ecology and the environment. The sorts of projects which ask people to go out and to look at their natural environment. There are a whole range of other projects where people can get involved with similar sorts of questions just on their computer as well. So we looked at a a range of those. So whether it's looking at bat calls, searching sound files for bat calls looking at photographs which have been taken from under the sea floor and then looking for fish and measuring scallops and all sorts of things. So people could get involved in their computers, but also people could have that hands-on interaction with nature. So we covered a, a wide range of those projects. Helen, how do you judge whether a review of all these citizen science projects, when they are so varied, are, are a success or not? I think success comes in so many different guises. So for some people, success might be the end use of the data, perhaps feeding into a policy indicator, for example, an indicator of farmland birds, for instance. But success might also be putting someone on the first rung of a scientific career or perhaps just putting them on the first rung and letting them enjoy being at that point and just immersing in nature, for instance, or looking more into water quality or more into the climate around them. Did you grade or sort out the environmental projects in in any way at all? We looked at the projects in a whole variety of ways and we also had 30 very, very detailed case studies where we asked people to tell us about the successes of their particular citizen science project and also the lessons that they've learned. And they covered a whole range, freshwater, terrestrial, marine, invertebrates, vertebrates, water quality, climate. So we did have a lot of categorisation of those projects and we had some of the success criteria that some people had used for their own projects. Now, Michael, the the report has sort of highlighted the role that technology plays in some of these projects. Why? I think technology has been absolutely fundamental in terms of the growth of citizen science. It's been absolutely tremendous as a way of people being able to interact with projects, being able to enter 
data from projects online um, and get feedback as well. Technology has also been used in, in a load of other ways and there are lots of smartphone apps now which have been developed over the past year or two for doing all sorts of recording of wildlife but also you can have sensors which you can plug into your smartphone to record radiation levels or air pollution. So technology is really helping to push the frontiers as to what can be done by people in terms of real data collection but also allows a much larger number of people to get involved with these sorts of projects as well. Are you involved in any citizen science projects yourself? Um, yeah, I co-run a project called Conquer Tree Science with Darren Evans from the University of Hull. One of the things with that is that we're trying to test some particular hypotheses. So we, we've asked people to get involved with addressing these questions. And one of the ways they do it is that they can um, pick a leaf from a conquer tree and have a go at rearing their own insects. It might be a pest insect or it might be a pest controller that they get out. And so we're trying to get people really hands-on with nature. Sounds great. What about you, Helen? I feel as I'm putting you both on the spot, just in case you say, actually, no, I haven't been involved in one. I have the great pleasure of running the UK <laughs> Ladybird Survey, and I run that jointly with Peter Brown at Anglia Ruskin University, and um, have been doing so for quite a few years, and it's absolutely fantastic pleasure to do that. And I would add as well that technology has been really important to the UK Ladybird Survey. We have an online recording form, and we're just in the process of developing a smartphone app that will be released next year, and we're very, very excited about that. But I think it's really important to remember as well that face-to-face contact is still extremely important and that feedback to the recorders is extremely important and so many of the traditional ways that we have engaged people through hundreds and hundreds of years of biological recording are still relevant today despite this plethora of smartphone apps and and other technologies that we're also excited by. Speaking of sort of face-to-face and feedback do scientists genuinely value the work that their volunteers are doing or do they just treat them as sort of unpaid PhD students? I don't think they would dare treat them as unpaid PhD (laughs) students. I think they really value this huge volunteer commitment and there's absolutely no way that we could have these large-scale long-term data sets if we didn't have people out there on the ground providing us with lots and lots of data. So it was with the utmost respect that we treat the community of volunteers and they provide really high quality data and in some cases some of the volunteers are more expert than the professionals if you like you know they have a phenomenal understanding of what it is that they're doing out in the field. Michael a guide is being produced can you explain what it will contain and and can people access this guide as well? We drew together all these lines of evidence and we also worked with our collaborators John Tweddle and Lucy Robinson from the Natural History Museum to draw on our experience as well to produce a guide to citizen science, a how-to guide, so that, so that people who are interested in setting up their own citizen science projects, whether it's something really local... So not just science, it's not aimed at scientists then? It's aimed at anyone who's interested in collecting this real data. It's not simply about engaging people with nature, but it's engaging people with nature and their environment to to collect data which is of value. And and that's the key, key thing. So whether it's for policy, whether it's for understanding more about your local patch, whether it's to answer scientific questions, we were really interested in producing something practical that would help people and help people, guide people through the process of designing their own project right from thinking about the aims, coming up with the right protocols as well. And of course it's not simply professional scientists or or people in, in 
um, environmental charities who are wanting to do this. A lot of drivers are also coming from the volunteers, um, people who might be involved, and they, they're helping increasingly to help shape the sorts of projects and, and create projects together with the so-called professionals. Um, and it's becoming really exciting. And the UK Environmental Observation Framework, who commissioned this research, saw that there was so much fantastic work going on in the field of citizen science, and they wanted to use this project to join up some of those gaps. And I really hope that that's what we've achieved through this guide and through the um, review. But we're really looking forward to having people's feedback, and we think it's a work in progress, and it will carry on developing, and we'll carry on sharing good practice and learning lessons. The guide and the full report on which the how-to guide was based is downloadable from the UK Environmental Observation Framework website, which is www.ukeof.org.uk. Great, we'll put that on our Facebook page as well. Helen Roy and Michael Pocock, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, at the start of the podcast, I asked you to guess which gas I had in mind that was associated with global warming and is also, from what you heard in that lab, toxic in large amounts. It wasn't carbon dioxide or methane or ozone or even nitrous oxide. It was isoprene. And research is ongoing at the University of East Anglia to find out more about this little-known gas and its potential effect on our planet. Colin Murrell is a professor of environmental sciences at the university and is also director of the Earth and Life Systems Alliance at the Norwich Research Park. So I began by asking him to tell me more about the gas. Isoprene is one of these rather understudied atmospheric trace gases that's produced in extremely large amounts in the environment. It's produced on the same sort of scale as methane, which everybody knows about as a global warming gas. And uh, there's huge amounts produced in on the terrestrial environment and in the in the aquatic environment. And it's actually quite a potent greenhouse gas it actually has a lot of reactions in the upper atmosphere this results in uh, ozone formation and again ozone is a potent greenhouse gas there are other schools of thought that suggest it actually forms in the upper atmosphere cloud condensation nuclei and of course if you increase the cloud cover that actually cools the earth and what we're particularly interested in is understanding how the feedback mechanisms occur in nature. So, for example, if I can use methane as the paradigm, the methane is actually produced in very, very large amounts biologically in the environment, and a lot of that methane is also consumed by microorganisms before it's released to the atmosphere. We think this is occurring with isoprene as well, but we we really have no firm understanding of the sorts of microorganisms that are capable of growing on isoprene and consuming it before it gets released to the atmosphere. So the team at the moment are actually gathering information concerning the microorganisms that are consuming the isoprene and then dissecting the organisms in terms of their physiology, biochemistry and molecular biology to try and find out which pathways they're using. And a lot of the work is is geared towards trying to develop molecular biological methods to determine which of these organisms are actually in the environment, where they are in the environment, which ones are the dominant organisms and which ones are actually chomping down on the isoprene before it gets released to the atmosphere. Antonia Johnston is one of the team working with those chomping microorganisms. 
Okay, so this here is the moral lab where we work. If we just go through here. Ooh, smells like cheese. That's the only word I can say. The yeah, smell. unfortunately, we work with quite a lot of smelly stuff. <laughs> so, if I take you over here, past the fume cupboard, the noisy fume cupboard. Yep. Apologies for the noise, but we can't turn that off. So, in here, this is my fridge, and this is where I keep all of my isoprene degrading bacteria, and also the isoprene. So, I would cover your nose because this stuff is safe enough to breathe in in small amounts. But um, when we dispense it, we have a huge drum that we dispense it from. And when we do that, we have to wear a specially fitted gas mask because it can be quite toxic in large amounts. So you've got combination of bacteria on little Petri dishes and these tiny little vials that say caution, isoprene. Very small, sort of only a few centimetres tall. So not much, not much gas there. No, well, it's actually a liquid in... Um, the storage vials because the thing is with isoprene it's very volatile so it turns into a gas very easily so we store it in the fridge as a liquid so then it's very easy to use just a little needle to take it out of these tiny little vials because you only need a really really small tiny amount added to the flask and then that will be in the flask as a liquid and a gas for the bacteria to use however they wish so where do you do your actual work then? There are quite a few. There's a row of about four or five workbenches here. Which one's yours? Okay, if we just go around here, this messy bench is mine. So this here is where I keep my Bunsen burner, which is where I have my flame to make sure all of my work is nice and sterile because we don't want any of the other bacteria from the air falling onto the plates and contaminating them. So... Just here I've got some plates that I've made today ready to plate the bacteria onto. And that's the little blue spots then on that well, petri dish. On Is, here are we've they got blue or? and white spots. So the blue spots are the ones I don't want. But if you can see these little white spots. So there's something in this plate which oh, yes, allows you... I can you, just about see the white ones through the yeah. transparent glass. It allows you to distinguish between two different types of bacteria. One have got the gene I'm interested in and one doesn't so we put a special chemical on there which turns some of them blue so when you've identified the genes that you're interested in what what do you do with it we want to sequence them so we do a lot of gene and genome sequencing because there's a particular protein that we know is involved in breaking down isoprene and so the idea is that all of the bacteria we work on should have this protein and therefore they should have the gene for this protein but we need to gather a large database of these genes for the work we do. Miriam Howand is also studying the gas, but from bacteria in plants. Plants produce a large amount of isoprene, and it was shown that it plays a role in plant protection, mainly against heat stress, and also it protects plants against insects because it was shown that it has a repelling odour, it helps protecting plants against insects and I think we're interested in the possibility that you have bacteria sitting on the surfaces of the leaves that can degrade a part of the isoprene that's being produced before it's being released to the atmosphere and now that we have a lot of microscopic techniques and um, tools to be able to study this and explore this area more and we had an interesting uh, result that we could isolate bacterium from the leaf surface that was able to use isoprene as a 
growth substrates. So this is looking promising. In the same way as the isoprene that's being produced by bacteria in the ocean, is this a relatively small amount of gas that's being produced, but obviously on a, on a sort of global scale if it's regards to plants? The plants are actually the main producers of isoprene. They produce about around three-quarters of the isoprene that's being produced yearly. It just seems so amazing, you know, up until this I'd never heard of isoprene before. Why is it so unknown? I don't know, maybe because, you know, so many people were studying, uh, including our lab, were studying more methane, but uh, now that you think more about people being worried about unpredicted climate change effects and you're turning more towards climate gas that's also being produced a lot but we know more about the production but we don't know a lot about the degradation and now because we have more developed tools as well to investigate this gas. It's an unknown, a relatively unknown gas. The effects are unknown. Could it be the case where actually this gas could be doing good things to the environment? Well, I think it's all a matter of balance, particularly with uh, if, we, if we use an, methane as an analogy. We've obviously been pumping more methane into the environment since the Industrial Revolution, and it's quite clear that the climate is changing, so there's a pretty good correlation there. With isoprene, and people have been measuring the concentrations of isoprene in the atmosphere for quite some time, and there are reasonably good models and assumptions about the amount that's been produced, and there's a fairly good knowledge of the atmospheric chemistry. But where the uncertainties are, are in the, in the biosphere where the isoprene is actually being produced biologically, and a lot of it may actually be consumed before it gets into the atmosphere. And so if there's an imbalance there, if we don't really know much about the mechanisms there, we can't predict about what may happen in the future with isoprene. I mean, I have to say it's also produced industrially. You can actually make polyisoprene, you can make uh, synthetic rubbers from it. And, of course, isoprene is a building block for many, many biomolecules. So many parts, constituents of uh, cells, actually contain the isoprenoid structure. So it's a very common intermediate in the metabolism of, uh, of cells. But where we're really interested in is, is trying to understand how the isoprene can be degraded and recycled in the environment before it actually gets into the atmosphere. And if we know more about the mechanisms and the processes, then we can actually make predictions on a global scale. Are there any other practical applications that could be used from studying this gas? The types of bacteria that break down isoprene, they're um, a group of organisms that, are, that have these very versatile monooxygenases. And these monooxygenases can degrade a whole variety of different alkanes and alkenes. For example, there's a, there's a pattern emerging with our isolates that they also break down propane as well as isoprene. And so it may be possible that these organisms have unusual biocatalytic properties. So the enzymes that break down isoprene can also break down other recalcitrant compounds in the environment. And again, I ha because of my 30 years' experience with methane oxidizing bacteria, I have to draw the analogy there with the enzyme methane monooxygenase, which we, we've been studying in the lab laboratory for many, many years. And that's an extremely versatile biocatalyst. So there's a lot of metabolic potential locked up in these types of organisms. So the applied aspects and the spin-offs of this type of research – 
maybe that we can discover new biocatalysts that can break down recalcitrant compounds and pollutants in the environment as well. Professor Colin Morell and his team from the University of East Anglia on Isoprene, a greenhouse gas that I suspect we're going to hear more about in the future. Well, that's it from this edition of the Planet Earth podcast, brought to you by the Natural Environment Research Council from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology in Oxfordshire. Don't forget to check out our Facebook and Twitter feed. I'm Sue Nelson. Thanks for listening.